Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. Mark chapter 11, start turning there. A couple more announcements. Uh, where, where are my dudes at? Guys, make some noise. Meh, it's all right. Uh, hey, mark, mark your calendars, guys. Um, November 4th, 5th, and 6th, we're having man camp. We're going to take 50 guys out to the FFA training center in Haines City. We're going to eat good food. We're going to shoot guns. We're going to get in the Word. We're going to get on our face before God, and we're going to invite the Spirit of God to come and to do a work on our hearts so that we can be the men that God has called us to be, the husbands, the fathers, the friends, the leaders in our homes, leaders in our churches, leaders in our communities. And so, men, please mark your calendars. We don't have any other information other than the date, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 11, 4, 5, and 6. More information's coming. Registration's coming. Uh, ticket price is roughly $250. We tried to get it as low as we could for the whole weekend. Really good food a place to sleep. You're actually on a bed. You don't have to like camp. Who does that stuff anyway? Gosh, I don't get out much, uh, unfortunately. But definitely, guys, we want you to get plugged in. Ladies, Grace Women have uh, some fall offerings coming up, so keep your eyes peeled for that as well. And uh, this Wednesday and next Wednesday night, we launch our Grace University classes. There are one or two spots left in some of those Wednesday night classes, walking through the book of Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, ladies, we've got a Sunday morning, 8.30 a.m. Bible study through the book of Philippians. If you ladies still want to be a part of that next week, it kicks off. Uh, during our third service, Kathy Withers is kicking off uh, her first session on In the Meantime, which is a Bible study conversation for uh, mothers who have children in the far country uh, and how to know how to preach the gospel to themselves as they pray for and trust God for their loved ones who are prodigals. And so we're really praying for God to do a unique work in the hearts and minds of those ladies that are in there. It's the fall. It's going to be busy. School's coming. I mean, and we want to engage and equip you, Grace, to be about the ministry of making disciples where you live, work, learn, and play. And to do that, we want to connect you guys together. We've just recently launched about 15 sacred marriage grace groups in the community, about 100, 150 people connecting and leaning into that. So we're super excited about all of that. Uh, any other announcements that I need to remember? Oh, yeah, guys, the, the parent workshop. Listen, uh, throw that slide up there if you can. Um, we're really excited about this. We are convinced uh, that uh, the majority of parents have been handing loaded weapons to their kids for a long time, not knowing that there are ways that we can protect our children from technology and give them resources to know how to stay one step ahead of the culture. Uh, because the culture is discipling our kids, uh, and we need to push back on that. And so we decided, because of a lot of conversations we've been having in the community, uh, is that we're going to have a parent workshop on August 27th, 9 to 12. It's going to be short, sweet. We're partnering with the sheriff's department. We're partnering with the school board. And we're basically going to, we're curating content to help parents be educated and equipped to know this is what your kids are listening to. This is what they're watching. These are the video games they're playing. These are the loopholes that you don't know about. Here are the apps that you need to be concerned about. We're bringing the special victims unit up from the sheriff's office to share some stories uh, of what's really happening in our community uh, when, um, when our kids are getting online and in game chats uh, and they're not protected and guarded. Right, and then we're going to be setting up geek squads around the sanctuary so that uh, you, mom, or grandparent that don't know how to lock down your devices or don't know how and what to be looking for when your kids come to stay with you, your grandkids come to stay with you, we can equip you uh, because 
Our kids' culture <laughs> is there in their pockets consistently. Uh, and so if this, if this event goes off well, we're probably going to have another one down the road. Um, we're going to talk about uh, sexuality and gender because a lot of folks are confused about that as well. Uh, and so we want to invite you parents, register. You can register by uh, checking outside with our... Um, with Kathy, we have a table set up with all of these little flyers on them, and they've got a QR code. You just open up your phone, put your camera on, and it'll take you immediately to the registration page. It's all free. It's all free. This is an opportunity for us to equip you, love on you, and to help uh, to give you the tools so that you can no longer uh, be wondering what your kids are doing with their devices. So, Okay. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. We're going to pick up the conversation right where Pastor Dustin left off last week. If you're new to Grace, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark for months now, and we're in the second half of the Gospel. Uh, we're calling this part of the series The King and His Cross, because something happens at Mark chapter 8. Jesus sets his face towards the cross, towards Jerusalem, and he gets really serious now for the rest of the second half of the Gospel of Mark, because he's headed towards the cross. And he wants to be really clear with his disciples, and he tells them over and over again, I, the Son of Man, am going to be lifted up for your sins. I'm going to be put to death and I'm going to rise again. The disciples, they, just, they weren't listening. They weren't paying attention yet. And so Jesus keeps repeating it. But now he is in Jerusalem. Last week, the triumphal entry, two weeks ago. And then last week, he goes into the temple and he's flipping over money tables. And he's disrupting Passover preparations. And Mark chapter 11, verse 27, we come on the scene. And the, the Sanhedrin... The leaders, the Jewish leaders of the religious establishment approached Jesus. This is the first time that these three groups of men have kind of come together to oppose Jesus. The scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. And they got a question for Jesus. And this question that they asked Jesus is literally going to start this contest of questions all throughout the end of chapter 11 and all the way in chapter 12 to verse 34. So here's what I'm going to attempt to do. I'm going to try to teach a whole chapter of scripture. I'm going to do a flyby and I'm just going to give you a little bit of a lot. And then I'm going to zero in and give you a lot of a little bit. Clear as mud, right? I'm going to give you kind of an overview of this entire section of this contest of debates back and forth where all of these religious leaders in different parties are coming to try to trick, trick Jesus and ask him questions to trip him up. And Jesus is going to go blow for blow and stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with them as well. So I'm going to try to teach all of that uh, as we can. And this question that kind of prompts the beginning of this contest of questions is in chapter 11 verse 27 and they came again to Jerusalem Jesus and the disciples and as he was walking in the temple the chief priests the scribes and the elders come to him again these three groups make up the Sanhedrin say Sanhedrin the Sanhedrin was the ruling body politic in Israel this is where the buck stopped for everybody who is Jewish. They were religious leaders. They were political leaders. They were the who's who, and they led the entire religious establishment in Jerusalem. They come up to Jesus. They got a question for him. And what's the question? Verse 28, they said to Jesus, hey, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, yo, who do you think you are, Jesus? We need to see some ID. We need to see some credentials. Show us your degree. Show us some certification because we've been asking around, Jesus. And as far as we can tell, you are an untrained, unrecognized, self-imposed rabbi. 
And so who are you to come in here and to do these things? That, that phrase, do these things, it's, it's this kind of vague, undefined phrase. Because I think that means the Sanhedrin, they're not just talking about the temple theatrics of Jesus. Remember last week, he comes into the temple, he's flipping tables upside down, he's making a ruckus. But this phrase, these things, it means so much more than just flipping tables. I think what they're asking is, Jesus, whose authority are you under showing up on the scene and teaching stuff that we've never heard before? On whose authority, Jesus, are you casting out demons? On whose authority are you bending the nature to your will with the winds and the waves and the fish and the bread and walking on water? On whose authority, Jesus, are you raising people from the dead? Whose authority, Jesus? And so this question of theirs, it sparks this whole chapter and a half of this back and forth debate where all kinds of people and numerous different parties are going to come and stand in opposition to Jesus. It starts with the Sanhedrin. Jump over in chapter 12 to verse 13, there's another group. Let me give you a flyby. This next group are the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they come to Jesus in chapter 12, verse 13, and they've got some questions for Jesus too, but don't mistake it. Their questions aren't coming from an open mind and a curious heart. Their questions have malicious intent all over them. Now, here's what's interesting about the Pharisees and the Herodians. These guys hated each other, hated each other. The Pharisees were a group of men who committed their lives essentially to keeping Israel kosher. They gave their lives to pushing back against the corrupting influence of Hellenism that had risen in the ranks in Israel. They pushed back against the cultural slide that wanted to take the kids from Israel and tell them that they could, I don't know, listen to music and go to bathhouses and wear dresses and whatever else the culture was beginning to corrupt them on. Man, the Pharisees, they pushed back. They were this conservative force for traditional values, and they fought against everything that Hellenism had to offer. These guys were so zealous for God that they were the ones who made a whole bunch of different laws and man-made traditions to put them around the law of Moses. These were the guys who created all the extra fences, they believe we love God and his word so much that we're going to add some extra laws to the 613 laws in the Torah just so we don't ever get close to the line. These are the guys that Jesus had a lot of conflicts with because they elevated the traditions of man over the word of God. The Pharisees had partnered with the Herodians. What word do you hear in the Herodians? Herod. Herodians, man, their lies were compromised, uh, their lives consisted of constant compromise because they were pro-Roman government. They were a body of Jews who were all for the Herodians and the Herodian dynasty. And you got to remember, the Herods, they were a line of puppet kings put into power by Rome to keep an eye on Israel. They weren't pure Jewish people. And so the Herodians were all about pro-Rome, pro-government, pro-occupation. Let's go ahead and serve Roman emperors. And now we've got the Herodians and the Pharisees, guys who hated each other and stood completely at opposite ends of the spectrum on ideology, united together in what? In their hostility and hatred of Jesus. And they come to Jesus with questions. There's another group after that. It's the Sadducees. The Sadducees were also a conservative group that didn't believe in the resurrection. And yet they're going to come to Jesus with this silly question about resurrection and marriage. And they're snickering in the back as they try to catch Jesus in a trap. And then even after that, there's another group. 
that come against Jesus. The, the, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they want to come and ask Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? I think they wanted to get Jesus into a corner to try to expose some of his unorthodox beliefs about the law. Maybe he's going to elevate something in God's law over some other rabbi or some other teacher, and then maybe they can trap him in a corner, and then they can take something to Rome with and say, listen, Jesus really is a rabble-rouser. you, you got to give us permission to put him down. And so all of these groups are coming against Jesus. It's like whack-a-mole, right? Like every time Jesus turns around, there's another group out to get him trying to take a swing at him, trying to trip him up, all of these questions and inquiries that are just laid up with snares. And here's the big point of the chapter. Jesus has always been a marked man, but even more so now that he reaches Jerusalem. Because now in Jerusalem, every step he takes is in the shadow of the cross. And now Jesus, Jesus is going to take the gloves off. He's going to roll up his sleeves, and he's going to stand toe-to-toe with all of these powers that are coming against him because he's done hiding his identity. He's done tiptoeing around the religious establishment. He's going to stand toe-to-toe with these guys, these opponents who are squaring up with the Son of Man. But here's the thing. All of these opponents that stood opposed to Jesus, they don't know who they're dealing with. They don't know that this is God in human flesh. And they don't understand that their articulate arguments and underhanded inquiries are all coming from intellects that are literally fueled by Jesus himself. Their hearts are kept beating by Jesus himself. Colossians 1.16 reminds us, for by him, Jesus, all things are created. Through him and for him. But they don't know. They don't know who they're dealing with. They don't understand that their entire beings were being held together by Jesus in that moment. And here they are seeking to entrap the word of life, to extinguish the light of the world. And so, man, the Sanhedrin come to Jesus. Hey, upon whose authority are you doing all of these things? This kicks off the contest of questions. And I love Jesus' response. Look at chapter 11, verse 30. They ask Jesus, hey, Whose authority are you doing this under? And Jesus says to them, I'll ask you a question. If you answer my question, I'll tell you yours. You want me to answer your question? I got one for you. And here's the question, verse 30. Was the baptism of John, John the Baptist, John the baptizer, was his baptism from heaven or from man? Answer me. Here's the question that he asks the religious leaders. And it's brilliant because this puts the challenge where it belonged with the religious rulers. Because they were going to be forced with answering some questions that they have been ignoring for years since Jesus came on the scene. They've never truly confessed whether or not they believe these men were from God or not. And so Jesus asked them a question. Are you going to validate the baptism of John or not? Was it from heaven or was it from Man, one of my favorite preachers, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he writes these words in the commentary. He says, despite John's and Jesus's forceful intrusions into their spiritual domain, the rulers had yet to state whether they believed these men were from God or not. And Jesus is urging Israel's leaders to a decision, but once more, they back away. Look at their response in verse 31. And they discuss with one another, well, well, I don't know, man, if we say that we say that John's baptism was from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? But man, if we say it's from man, gosh, because they were afraid of the people. The people recognized the hand of God on John. They understood that John truly was a prophet from God. And so the Sanhedrin, 
the leading body of religious scholars look at Jesus and say the one thing they did not want to say. We don't know. And here's the deal, church. If the rulers had been willing to acknowledge where John came from, they would not have tripped up at all acknowledging Jesus. However, if they refused the voice crying in the wilderness in John, they would refuse the greater voice crying in the temple in Jesus. And so Jesus says, I see right through y'all. I see right through y'all. I'm not going to answer your question. And then Jesus in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, we don't have time to unpack it. He gets into this parable. He starts telling this story. And it's a story that's very familiar to the religious leaders because it's literally from Isaiah chapter 5. And it's a story about Israel and a vineyard and how Israel was the vineyard and how Israel kept ignoring all of the prophets that God sent to the vineyard to tell them that judgment was coming. And as a result, Israel went into captivity because of their sin. And so Jesus tells the story again, but this time with a twist. It's about a vineyard and an owner who went away and tenants came to work the fields and the vineyard while the owner was away and the tenants were the Israel's leaders, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And Jesus leaves the prophets in the story. And the story is they kept sending the prophets, the workers to check on the work and you kept beating them up, Jesus says. And then the owner sent a beloved son and you killed him and put him to death. So clear was Jesus in this parable. So on the nose that the Sanhedrin understood Jesus was pointing them out. Painting a target on their backs that they were doing the same thing that Israel did hundreds of years ago. Despised God's word, rejected God's messengers, and ultimately put to death God's representatives. Look at chapter 12, verse 12. This is what they say. And they, the Sanhedrin, were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and they went away. Where did they go? Well, they went to lick their wounds. uh, And I think they went to text the Herodians and Pharisees and be like, okay, plan B, we need you guys. Come on, meet me at the Starbucks. We're going to go through the plan. We got an idea how we're going to trip up Jesus. Which brings us to our first deep dive in this passage, chapter 12, verse 13. We're going to hang out here for a little bit. Chapter 12, verse 13. And they, the Sanhedrin, sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, we already met them, to trap Jesus in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, listen how the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus. Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They're laying it on kind of thick, ain't they? I think they meant to come to flatter, but it's dripping with poison. And then they drop the bomb. Oh, teacher, faithful and true. We don't care about appearances. We know that you only teach the way of God. Should we pay Caesar taxes or not? There's the bomb. Pay taxes. No pay taxes. What do you say, Jesus. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus says to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, bring me a poll tax, bring me a coin, let me look at it. Verse 16, and they brought him one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's, and Jesus said to them, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. This is an iconic passage, one that you've probably heard before, you probably read 
Render unto Caesar is the words that are iconic even in our language today. So let's unpack this. In the last three and a half years, Jesus has had this uncanny ability to unite people to himself. He has taken men and women from every walk of life imaginable and has molded them into a family committed to his kingdom work. He's taken 12 unshaped, unformed, unadorned clay young men, and he has shaped them into a band of apostles who would literally be willing eventually to lay down their lives for Jesus' sake and his kingdom's sake. And so Jesus has this ability to unite people under the banner of love and under his kingdom purposes, but not everybody is united to Jesus in that way, obviously, because the Pharisees and Herodians are united in their hostility against Jesus. The culture is united in its hostility against Jesus in our culture today as well. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees, man, they come to Jesus, this delegation, and they come with a carefully thought out and very pointed trick question. And we saw how they, how they began. They, they, they kind of floweredly came with flattery and, and they came with false humility and respect and it's dripping with poison. And then they get to the point, they drop the bomb, Jesus, shall we pay Caesar taxes or not? And this was a burning question in their day. It was a political quandary for everybody in Israel. We already know the Herodians, they were pro-Roman government. Pay the tax, support the dynasty, long live Herod. But then there were Pharisees on the other side. Heck no, don't pay that tax. Down with Herod. Don't ever do that because to do so would declare the legitimacy of Roman occupation and it would prove us to be unfaithful to God. They really thought that they had Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Now, this poll tax... It's what it's called. This particular tax was a poll tax. Every adult in Israel was required by Roman law to pay this tax once a year. It's a little silver coin, the value of something less than our quarter. And it was a source of irritation to the common people because nobody likes paying taxes then or now, right? Wouldn't it have been nice if we asked Jesus, hey, do we pay taxes? And he says no, right? But this tax, though it was small in quantity, it was very significant. You know why? Because once again, it reminded Israel that they were a subjected people, a subjugated people, a people who had a foreign power over them. Once again, they were reminded Rome had their boot on Israel's neck and that they were a subjugated people. And they had been that way for half a millennium. Since the Babylonian invasion, when God warned Israel through the prophets that if you keep walking in idolatry, I will send judgment and I will chastise you. And there was a season where Israel was free after the Maccabean revolt. For, for, for the most part, they have been subjugated ever since with some Roman power or some power over them. And now Rome, Rome is ruling. And where Rome ruled, Rome taxed. And where Rome taxed, Rome was hated for it. And so here's a question. What is really being asked of Jesus in this question? What's the significance? What's at stake here? Well, if Jesus says, pay the tax, sure, some would be annoyed, but some would be deeply, deeply offended and outraged. Remember, Rome was very clever. You know, Rome didn't send around tax collectors to knock on their door in their Roman getup to take your money, right? You remember how Rome collected taxes? They did it through your next door neighbor, who was Jewish. 
purchasing the rights from Rome to come and to take your money to pay for this Roman occupying force, which was a brutal regime, folks. Rome was pillaging the ancient world, violating your daughters, killing your sons, taking your resources. And your next door neighbor, Abraham, who lives down the street, just purchased the right to take your money and to pay for them to stay put. This is why it was so scandalous for Jesus to tell Zacchaeus, hey, come down, I'm going to go break bread with you today. See, we think the full weight of a tax collector is that they took 20 bucks when they should have took 10 and pocketed the rest. That's not the full weight of a tax collector. The full weight of a tax collector is that it's your own countrymen that has betrayed you and your people and is taking your money to fund this oppressive regime. That's why it was so outlandish that Jesus would hang around with tax collectors and sinners. Those two words were synonymous in the New Testament, tax collectors and sinners. And so for Jesus to say, yes, pay the tax in the eyes of many, he'd have been seen as a puppet of the Roman government, and he would have lost the respect of the common people who had heard him gladly. However, if Jesus said no, if he said, down with Rome, don't pay the tax, then he would have been just like all the other insurrectionists, and he would have been put to death immediately. Don't believe me? Go, go read Acts chapter 5 later. You'll meet Judas the Galilean real guy, started an insurrection against Rome by not paying taxes. He was quickly put to death. Josephus writes about him in Antiquity of the Jews, and all of his followers were scattered. So Jesus knew that, okay, I I need to thread the needle here. And the Sanhedrin, the Herodians, the Pharisees, man, they really thought they had Jesus between a rock and a hard place. It's either or, Jesus. It's either God or Caesar. It's either taxes or no taxes. What's it going to be, Jesus? And what does Jesus do? How does he respond? This is brilliant. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Bring me a coin. Let me look at it. Jesus knows what's up. He knows their angle. So he asked them for a coin, a denarius. It's, it's what they would have used to pay the tax. And it was a tribute penny. It's about the size of a thumbnail. And you can make out the writing very clearly on it. You know what's on both sides? On one side is the head of the Roman emperor Tiberius. And underneath that, written in Latin, are these words, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, son of God. And on the other side was another title, Pontiff Maxim, high priest. This wasn't just about paying taxes, y'all. This was a deeply, deeply theological question that they posed for Jesus. See, these words, son of the divine Augustus, son of God, these are words that should have never been given to some mere man, especially not a pagan emperor. High priest, come on. These words were deeply idolatrous to the people of Israel and the fact that they had to carry these coins and use them to pay the tax graded them at a deep, deep place because they'd spent most of their history in subjugation and under captivity because of idolatry before. This is a deeply theological question. And so Jesus asked for the coin. He says, hey, give me the coin. Give me the poll tax. I want to show you something. He asked the question, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? Whose face is on the coin? Who's the inscription referring to? And they said to him rightly, Caesar's. And Jesus' brilliant response in verse 17 is what? Then render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. 
and they marveled at him. Jesus had to play their game. He had to answer the question. And yet their response, it gave Jesus the opportunity to enlarge this conversation. Caesar exists. It's true. He occupies the land. He has his own coinage. He asks for tribute, and it was perfectly legitimate for him to do so. He is the emperor, you know. But this question is now no longer about taxes. Now it's about territory. How does the realm and the rule of Caesar relate to the realm and the rule of God? Because Jesus' answer, it sets for us this lasting principle of how we relate as Christians to the state, to Caesar, to the governing authorities in our lives. How do we respond to Caesar and to God? So Jesus asks them, hey, whose image is on the coin? Who's the coin talking about? If it's Caesar's, then give it to Caesar. But don't forget, give to God what is God's. Now, there should have been a follow-up question, of course. The follow-up question we should read is, hey, if we're supposed to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and we're supposed to give to God what is God's, then what is God's? And Jesus would have responded, whose image is on you? Whose image is stamped on you? You know, we routinely preach Genesis chapter 1 that we, humanity, the, the apex and pinnacle of God's creative glory is that we as humans have been created in the very image and likeness of God. That can mean a lot of different things. Here's how I sum it up. To be created in the very image of God, the Imago Dei, means that we have received the ability to contain and to give expression to the very life of God. That we can communicate and commune with God in a way that nothing else in all of creation can. We're it, created in the image of God. And can I tell you that there is no leader of any other religious worldview who would ever have put you into that camp. Jesus says, give Caesar what is his. But give to God what is his. Ultimately, what he's saying is that we as God's creation ultimately owe our allegiance to our creator. See, these questioners, they were trying to pit Jesus in a political power battle with the powers that be. But, but Jesus maneuvered them in such a place that it was clear. Caesar, he does have a role to play in our lives. The state does have a role. Government has a role to play. And we can both honor Caesar and we can honor God. We can honor the governing authorities in our lives and we can honor God, which truly should be with our entire lives. We'll get, that into a, get into that in a second. But Grace, here's the deal. Caesar has a legitimate realm in our lives. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2 speaks to that specifically. We don't have time to chase that rabbit down, but in a nutshell, hear me. Caesar, the state, the governing authorities in this world, they, they get their legitimate authority from God. And they have a legitimate function in the world to preserve peace to wield the sword when necessary to maintain that peace and to require tribute and tax from us to pay for that peace. Now, I'm not here to argue what we're supposed to do as believers when the state oversteps those functioning boundaries. That's a great conversation. I encourage you to email Pastor Dustin. He would love to take you out for coffee and talk about that. No, Jesus just wants us to know here Caesar's realm has a place in our life, but so does 
God. Because in the context of this conversation, first century Palestine, applied to the situation in Judea, Caesar met these conditions. He rules the land. He keeps the peace. He deserves tribute. Of course, radicals of all ages will resist this premise until Jesus comes back. But to the man or woman who lives submitted to the word of God, you don't have a lot of wiggle room here. 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, go read it. And then you square with how you're going to honor God and submit to the governing authorities. There is a right time and a right place for civil disobedience. Not wearing masks, wasn't it? I'm starting to meddle. Let me stop. Jesus wants us to see that there is a legitimate realm for Caesar and for God. And it almost seems like he's trying to balance out these two realms by kind of putting them side by side with interchangeable names for the same conditions. But the similarities of Caesar's realm and God's realm, man, they could not be more different. For God, too, has a legitimate authority. His authority is sovereign. His function is redemption. And you know what his tribute is? Absolute and total obedience to his will from his people. The Pharisees, in search for righteousness, they had usurped God's sovereignty, narrowed his redemption, and they had limited obedience to his will. And so Jesus reminds them, by all means, render unto Caesar what is his, but give to God what is his. You belong to God. Grace Bible Church, you are God's. Does your life reflect that? What's brilliant about Jesus' response here is that he skillfully takes an either-or question that these questioners really thought that would deliver the death blow to Jesus, and he expertly expands this either-or into a both-and answer like only he could do. You see this, right? They thought they trapped him by having to pick a side. God or Caesar, Jesus, taxes or no taxes. But Jesus says this isn't either or, this is both and. And with one sentence, Jesus exposes the truth of his enemies and he demolishes their efforts to trick him. Here's why. Because he put the question of living under Caesar in its proper place, a distant second behind the more important question of living in the kingdom of God. Why? Because the man or woman who is devoted to God does not make the issue of their political freedom the primary thing in their life. Let me say that again. For those who ignored me. The man or woman of God who is devoted to God does not make the issue of their political freedom the number one priority in their lives. We're Americans and we're Christians. We love our rights, don't we? However, hear me, church, if we are primarily looking to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to decide whether or not we should do something instead of the Word of God and listening for the Spirit of Christ, we are going to the wrong source. Far too long, believing Christians in the West step into rooms with an attitude of, what can I secure because of my rights? Instead of what can I lay down for the sake of others? Praise God, Jesus laid down his rights. The one who deserved all rights. Rights aren't a bad thing. But the child of God, the kingdom citizen, is to be led by love, not by law. The law and the rights, they give us too many loopholes to not love one another. 
And so Jesus is saying, hey, give to Caesar what is his. You want clean streets and you want safety in your community? Man, pay your taxes. But what about the rest of your life? Are you giving to God what is God's? Your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, your families, your children, your hopes, your aspirations, your wallets, your pocketbooks, your sexuality. And all of that stuff belongs to God and belongs into a proper conversation with God. And listen, there's so much more that we could say about this, especially in our heated culture about our relationship as believers to the state. But we're not here to answer those questions this morning. No, we're here to see that Jesus will not be trapped and tricked before his time has come. But he's also done being bullied around because he knows there's some people in the crowd who still have ears to hear and eyes to see. And so he wants to speak to the needs to the, to the needs behind the faults of those who are accusing him and trying to trap him. Because remember, when Jesus gets to the cross, what he's going to cry out before he gives up his spirit, no one put Jesus to death. Jesus laid his life down. Remember that. But what Jesus would say before he laid his life down was, God, God, Father, forgive them. Forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And so there's one more debate I want to zero in on because it's connected here to this one that we just finished See, these attackers, the Pharisees and Herodians, they couldn't pit Jesus against the religious political authorities of the day. So the next group in verse 28 are going to try to pit him against the religious authorities of the day. So the scribes come up to him. This one guy comes up in verse 28 and says, hey, Rabbi, teacher, what's the greatest commandment of all the commandments? Which is the greatest one? We know that Moses had given 613 laws in Torah. The first five books of the Bible, the law, the Pentateuch. 613 laws. Now the scribes, the teachers of the law, they were very much interested in listing the laws of God in a clear order of priority so they could know exactly how they were doing when they stood up and to measure their lives against that. I mean, we do that as well. God, just give me a list of rules so that I can follow them, so I can be okay with you. The problem is that doesn't work because the standard's too high. We can't live up to the rules. It's why we needed Jesus to come to live them for us and to give us his well done so that we can then live out of his life and walk in a way that was obedient and pleasing to the Father. Christianity is not about staying in the proper boundaries of behavior. It's about learning to receive the life of Christ and learning to give expression to his life, which is always pleasing to the Father. Christianity is not about the improvement of our character. It's about the expression of his life. Because those of us who have been saved and rescued from our sin and made new in Christ have received his life and now we can learn to live out of the inexhaustible source and supply of the life of Jesus. You have a corresponding supply of the life of Christ for every crisis you're ever going to come up against. I mean it, you really do. In Christ, you have all of the resources you need for whatever that next call is going to be. Because God's not surprised by it, and he's joined you to his life, his overcoming, indestructible, full of patience, second mile, cheek-turning, forgiving life. Don't tell me you ain't got no patience if you're a Christian. You got the patience of Christ himself. You may not be walking in that patience. That's probably because you've never been discipled. You've never walked alongside another brother and sister who have learned how to live out what is now true about them in Christ. It's why we need one another. 
So the scribe asked Jesus, hey, which law is the most important? And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus answered him in verse 29. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He starts quoting from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. But he doesn't stop there. Then he says, the second is like that, is like this. You shall also love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus' answer underlines the fact that any man's attempt to measure himself against the law for his own reassurance is bound to lead to disaster because the very first law that Jesus requires here is comprehensive, universal, undiluted love for God with every ounce of our being, heart, soul, mind, strength. Do you know what it means to love God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength? Jesus is talking about everything. The heart the center of our being. He must come first so that our hearts might be directed towards God and his glory. It means that God must come first in our ambitions and in our motives, and we are to love him not just with our heart, but also with our souls so that all of our affections and emotions will be in tune with his will and set aflame with a desire to serve him. And then we must give him our minds, our thought life, so that we might fight to keep our minds pure and to have all of our thinking disciplined and controlled by what God has revealed in Scripture. And then our strength and our might and our energy must be his as well. We're talking about full, comprehensive Render unto God what is God's. What is God's you are. All of you. Is that how we live out our Christianity? Or is this just us checking the box so that we can feel good about ourselves and go back to living our life? And when crisis hits the fan, we'll come back to church and we'll ask God and we'll pray. And then we'll get back to making our decisions and Living life as if Jesus is in a box and we'll bring him out when we need him. No, 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 no. Like, render unto God what is God's. You are God's. You are created in his image. He created you with purpose and meaning and destiny and origin. So Jesus says, what is the greatest commandment? Love God with everything you've got. But then he adds on to it and says, and also love your neighbor as yourselves. Why? Why does Jesus add this to the greatest commandment? The same reason that he gave the Pharisees and Herodians a few verses earlier. Hear me now. Because our neighbors, each and every one of them, have also been made in the very image of God. Every one of them. Even the ones you can't stand. They probably don't like you too. But guess what? They too are an image bearer of the one true God. And to love God himself implies that we will also love everyone who has been made to reflect him in any way. In other words, grace, we cannot love God and not love those who bear his image. Not only is it inconsistent, it is anti-Christ. And we're not going to be about that here at Grace. We champion diversity not because of the culture, but because that's what heaven looks like. We want our church to mirror heaven, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. If you don't like that, you're going to have a hard time with heaven. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. 
That's why Jesus adds to this greatest commandment. We love our neighbors as we love ourselves. John, the beloved John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. I don't have this verse, but listen to John's words. It couldn't be clearer. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. John will play games. Don't go read 1 John. You might walk away and be like, I'm not even saved. <laughs> it's a tough book. He goes on to say in verse 20, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Why does John say that? Because those who have eyes to see should see the image of God in one another. The intrinsic value of humanity in each and every single person. Because we are all created in the image of God. Grace, we've been called to both a vertical love and a horizontal love. To love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and as, I, as I land this plane, listen, church, we all have a special motivation for loving others. For caring for others. Because we know something about people that they may not even know about themselves. That they were created by God and for God to reflect his image and his glory. Even when that image has been distorted because of sin. Because we, of all the people in the world, should be seeing what is possible in someone. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. We should be able to see and call out of people what is possible because we are in the business of redemption, have been called to the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a big church word. You want to know what it means? It means to bring back into a state of harmony. If a creek had a big rock fall right in the middle of it and stopped up the flow of water, we would need to reconcile that creek again. And so to destroy that rock would to reconcile, to bring back into harmony the flowing of that water. We have been called to a ministry of bringing people back into harmony with the God who loved them, created them, and has a passion and purpose for them. And to the degree that we know the love of God in our hearts, we will be moved with compassion towards other people. Friday night, I already mentioned, I was out at the prison. I got to baptize seven guys. It was amazing. Uh, and Friday night, I was teaching on John chapter 13, 34, and 35, where Jesus tells his disciples, just after washing their feet, he says, a new commandment I give you, to love one another just as I have loved you. For by so doing, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Jesus tells us the one thing that's going to set us apart from everyone else in the world would be our love for one another. It's not going to be how much theology we could systematize. It's not going to be how well we can recite creeds and confessions. It's not going to be your church attendance, your tithe record, or your Bible memorization plan. It's going to be your love for one another that is going to set you apart and to tell the world that you belong to Jesus. So how are we doing at loving one another? Here's the kicker, though. Our love for one another will not tell anyone about Jesus if it's not lived out in front of other people. Church, if we're not careful, our love will become isolated and inward-looking, and before long, we will only ever hang around Christians. Do you know any people who are not Christians? 
Are you engaged in relationships with folks who are not yet believers? If not, we're failing at our missionary call to be a light to the darkness. Now, don't take that as a burden to do it by yourself. It's why we need to link arms with one another. Listen, me and my household, we low on that whole gift of mercy. That's why we need some of y'all merciful saints to come and join us. That's why we need the body of Christ to come together on display, all of the different gifts that God has put together. It's why we believe that the way we're going to saturate the heartland with the good news of Jesus Christ is when people like you start gathering together in community, living on mission with all of your gifts on display. Those of you that have the gift of hospitality, those of you that have the gift of mercy, those of you who have the gift of giving and can pay for it and write the checks to make the stuff happen, those of you who have the gift of prophecy who can open the word of God and speak truth and speak life. Those of you that have the gift of shepherding, those of you that have the different gifts that are necessary for the flourishing of the body of Christ. And everybody has a role to play. I'm teaching like 16 different messages this morning, but you're a captive audience. Last night was a captive audience at the prison. Y'all can get up and leave if you want. Here's the deal, church. Let me, let me end. Jesus was not casting vision for a glorified clique, but a contagious love that would compel people to come and see. And the coming and seeing probably won't be here on a Sunday morning, but it sure might be your living room or your dinner table or your backyard or your next Super Bowl party or the potluck that you throw in the neighborhood with your, what's it called? Yeah, neighbors. <laughs> Look, I know we did not do this 12th chapter justice this morning, but let me, let me land where Jesus landed. Chapter 12, verse 34. Listen to how he responds to the scribe. Jesus tells him what the greatest commandment is. The scribe responds, you're right, teacher, absolutely. He nails it all. And then Jesus says to him in verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They were out of ammo. None of their shots affected him at all. Here are the takeaways. Jesus has always been a marked man, but here in chapter 12, he's in Jerusalem. The cross is right around the corner. Literally at the end of this week, he's going to be on the cross The powers that be have unloaded their heavy guns and they came at Jesus with all of their ingenuity, all of their flattery and trickery and divisiveness and he cut through them like a hot knife in butter. But he did not miss a chance to speak truth and to speak to the needs behind their faults. He didn't miss an opportunity to remind them of what is true and to speak hope and life for those who had ears to hear and eyes to see. And so let me rephrase the same statement that Jesus ended this passage with. Let me pose it as a question for you, Grace. We are nearing the end of Mark's gospel and his record of the coming kingdom of God. And it is surely time for us to stop and ask ourselves, am I near to the kingdom of God? Or am I in the kingdom of God? If I'm in the kingdom of God, then may I render unto Caesar what is his, but may I give to God what is his. Is there any part of your life that you're withholding from him? I'm telling you. Servicing your life and giving it to Jesus to be distributed for his sake 
It's one of the most fulfilling places you'll ever find yourself. To be the road that God travels to bring his good news to every nook and cranny of your life, where you live, work, learn, and play, it is a beautiful thing. But maybe you're close to the kingdom of God. You're leaning in, you're asking questions, but you're not yet there. I want you to know that entrance into the kingdom of God is not getting all the answers right on the test or jumping through the hoops and trying hard to be like Jesus. You can't be like Jesus enough. Only Jesus can be Jesus. And that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus says, I want to live my life in you, as you, and through you. Would you let me do that? Would you let me love through you in such a way that I will meet the needs of your spouse and your children? Would you let me be your vocation through you and show the world around you what it looks like to do all things for the glory of God? Would you let me parent your children through you because I really am the good father and I know what the needs of your children are more than you do? Will you submit your life to me and watch what I can do? Scriptures say that if we confess and believe that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you an opportunity just in silence before the Lord with heads bowed and eyes closed. We're going to do that youth group thing. Don't want to embarrass anybody. I just want you to invite the Holy Spirit to do a work in you. If you're not yet in the kingdom of God, I want to ask you to invite the Spirit of God to connect those dots, to bridge that gap In other words, to save you, to rescue you, to be your Lord, to be your Savior, to be your life. And if you're already in the kingdom, would you ask God what areas in your life you still need to submit and surrender to him so that you can truly render to God what is God's? Let's take a moment of silence before the Lord. Father, you have stamped your image on all of us, but that does not make all of us children of God. It makes all of us image bearers of God. But we enter into your family through confession and repentance. And so, God, would you convince those in this room that you are worthy of our lives, worthy of our confession? And God, we may not know what it means to say, Jesus, save me, rescue me. Here's my life. Here's my, my resources. Here's my aspirations, my hopes, my dreams, my families. Here's my life, God, take it. We may not know what that means, God, but you do. And you meet us in that moment. And God, you bring us into this journey of faith with you as a part of your family, as citizens of your kingdom. And you give us everything that we need. So Holy Spirit, would you do that work? Would you rescue those in this room that need your salvation? May we receive that gift of salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, and eternal life, whose name is Jesus, to come and take permanent residence within our spirits, to guide and lead us through your spirit. Do that work today. With eyes closed, heads bowed, if... That's you. If you confess Jesus, if you raise the hand, if, or if you, if you ask Jesus to do that work, would you throw up a hand just so that we can celebrate and come alongside of you? I see you. I see you guys. Thank you. I see you. 
I see hands going up all over the place. I'd love for you to stick around after service and come talk to us so that we can help you take some next steps. You can put your hands down, guys. I see you. Thank you in the back. I see you, sister, in the back. You can put your hand down. Thank you. Father God, thank you for the work of salvation. We're not here to twist arms, Jesus. We're here to create an environment where your spirit can do what you promised to do. Draw us out of death and into life. Father, may we come alongside these brave souls who've raised their hands, Father, so that they might take the next steps of learning what it means to submit and surrender all of life to the leadership of Jesus. Father, give them the confidence to come and talk to us so that we can help them make steps towards obedience to you, whether that's small group or Bible study or forgiveness or baptism. God, we want to take next steps with these folks. So thank you, Father, for your work. Thank you, Jesus. That even with the cross looming over you, you cared enough to speak the truth in love. Continue to give us eyes to see people the way that you see them. So that we can love them the way that you love them. In Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen.